You're listening to Teach, Think, Treat, a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. This podcast is for healthcare professionals and students about teaching and learning in a busy clinical setting. Whilst our setting is a tertiary paediatric hospital, our experiences and challenges are shared by many professionals and students in other clinical environments. Hi, my name is Steve Lacey and I'm the Allied Health Education Fellow in the RCH Education Hub. I also work as a tutor radiographer in the RCH Medical Imaging Department. Feedback is a very important part of our work and there's two main aspects of it. There's the giving of feedback and the receiving of feedback. Both of these are very different from one another depending upon which side of the fence you're on. And most of us want to receive feedback because it's good to know whether you're doing your job well and how you can make your work better. The giving of feedback is much harder. Most of us don't want to do it because we don't want to feel uncomfortable about telling someone they are doing well or doing poorly. But it can be made easier if you plan and structure your feedback. Well, today I'm speaking with Alicia Matthews and Dr. Peter Howe, both of which have done a lot of work in structuring and delivering feedback. Alicia is the RCH Allied Health Clinical Educator, and Pete is one of the RCH anaesthetists, Supervisor of Anaesthetic Training, and Musician Extraordinaire. Welcome to you both. (laughs) Thanks, Steve. I look forward to finding out why I'm a musician extraordinaire. (laughs) Thanks, Steve. Wow. So this is such a big topic. Uh, Where do we actually begin? Let's start with you, Alicia. The feedback dialogue is something that can occur at any time. To help listeners understand a little bit more about which feedback is important at certain time points, can you outline a couple of feedback types? Yeah, absolutely, Steve. Thank you. So I guess we think of feedback in probably two columns. So there's summative feedback, which is really that outcome focus or I guess the more formal judgment of performance, you might say. So it's kind of the assessment of somebody's learning. Yeah. So that's the more formal one, like exams and competencies that you might have if you're a student on placement or in, say, your performance review if you're a staff member. Um, the one I think we're probably going to touch on a bit more today is, is formative feedback, which has a developmental focus. So where you're really helping the learner to develop and grow. Um, so that's what we call assessment for learning. So it's self-assessment of the learner, if they're doing peer observations or kind of teaching or learning on the run, you might say. So I think that's where we're probably going to focus more of our energy today. I always get confused between formative and summative because formative is not formal, whereas summative <laughs> is formal. And it, it does confuse me a little bit. The way that I always see it as well, if we use a, a bit of an example, is formative feedback is something that you would do on the run. So if someone's doing some clinical work, you'd be, you'd be saying, you know, you did a good job with this, you did a good job with that at the time. Absolutely. Your summative feedback is what you do at the end of a session where you're actually both sitting down and you're really nutting out everything that actually went on during that session. Absolutely. And I think for a learner, that summative feedback is, that, is normally quite obvious. This is when I'm getting feedback. But that formative feedback, learning as you go, is almost more important because you can take that feedback and action it the very next time. So yeah. I think. Another way to think of those two words, summative is like giving an assessment. So this is the sum of the good things and bad things you did. And mm-hmm. it adds up to six and a half. Good on you. And formative helps form you into the person we'd yeah. both like you to be. Ah, yeah. I like that. That's really good. Yeah, that's good. So what are some of the problems that can occur with feedback, Alicia? And look, this is some of the data we've got and from the University of Melbourne and learners often complain they don't get enough feedback. And whether that's the case or whether it's not signposted enough that this conversation we're having between patients is feedback, I'm not sure. Um, at the times, people can see it as really confronting. So they know it's important, but they don't know how to deliver it. And sometimes as an educator, you can resent spending so much time giving feedback if your learner's not taking notice of it. But once again, I question if 
they realise that was feedback. Like, was that a good conversation where you can take something away? Yeah. Um, we know that feedback can be too, too diagnostic or the educator spends too much time telling rather than having active participants in feedback. So um, it's very easy when you watch somebody to give them advice and want them to improve, but telling is probably not the best way for that to happen. Um, and any type of feedback needs strategies for improvement. So feedback can fall down if people walk away not knowing what the next step is, I think. Yeah. So I think an example of what you were talking about before would just be like, oh, you know, how do you think I'm going? Yeah, you're doing good. Exactly. And that's it. Yeah. Where, where do I go with that, Steve? Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. So it sounds like we've got a lot of problems with feedback. So I'm guessing there's also the fear that feedback will be taken the wrong way or that the receiver reacts in a way that isn't very nice. What are some of the ways around mitigating these problems? Absolutely. I think that that's a big discussion, but potentially sometimes we just summarize it into fit and able feedback. So fit is how it's delivered. So we need it to be frequent so that people get into the, I guess, the mode of accepting and delivering feedback. It needs to be interactive. And Pete and I are going to talk a lot on that probably today. And timely. It really needs to be straight after a session or completely in the front of people's mind. No point giving feedback on your professional behaviour three days after the consult. It might not mean a lot to somebody. So that timely aspect is really important. And then it's how, as a person, you deliver it. So able, is it appropriate? Is it balanced? And are you specifying the behaviours and, and not, I guess, your own biases? And have you labelled it? Like, have you given that example so pe- your learner can walk away going, that's exactly what they meant? Um, and I guess empathetic is really important too. Like, are you coming at it from understanding where both parties are coming from rather than just telling almost? Yeah. Pete, in what situations do you find yourself giving feedback? Firstly, I really like those acronyms. I've been doing this for 20-something years and I've got something out of this at minute four of the podcast. Uh, so I've been, this is my 23rd year as a supervisor of training and uh, as an anaesthetist, we have an apprenticeship model. So I'm often working with one of the trainees and sometimes they're in their uh, third year of specialist training. So maybe they've been a doctor for five, eight years in total. Mm-hmm. And then we have what we call our fellows who might've finished all their training or at the very last year and they come back for... Uh, the icing on the cake in the specialty of paediatrics. And there's two main things. One, when I'm working with someone, they're sort of expecting a stream of what you might call coaching, largely expected and it's from me to them and like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. Oh, that's another way. Oh, good. But then the second one is when the emotions are elevated, when something hasn't gone well. Like if my boss says to me, hey, can I just – have a chat to you about something, the dark cloud appears. Yeah. And similarly, if I say to someone, let's have a chat about this, I mean, that it's going to be a disaster from then on. So having a structured approach to both is a good idea. I also find, I think sometimes when I'm giving feedback as well, I like to try to structure my feedback that's going to be the same every time. So for example, if I'm doing something like a summative type feedback, I'll often like to take another uh, one of my clinical educators into the room with me, with the student, so that that way it's not a surprise if the, if, to the student if the feedback is going to be negative. A, a lot of people, what they do is they say, right, if you're going to give negative feedback, you've got to take someone else with you to make sure that you know, things can't be construed the wrong way or something like that. But I think the student will then realise that when, when there's two educators going into the room together, they're like, oh, this isn't good. <laughs> there's, two, there's two educators going in together. But if you, if you do it all the time then all of a sudden it's not going to be something that, that they're going to get nervy about. I can see how that might work. I tend to pull it back a bit further. It's really hard to imagine where I've ever given negative feedback. I would sort of 
pull back a little. I'm very much uh, shaped by the Boston Institute of Medical Simulation and Jenny Rudolph, who's the legend who's now running that. And she'd sort of categorized interactions with people into three big categories. So three ways of having an exchange, and they all seem to work slightly better for different situations. And then um, I've developed my own little (laughs) approach to how to use that. So as a little bit of a pun on paediatrics, uh, the APLS is the thing for advanced paediatric life support, whereas I tend to call it the ACLS protocol, advanced communication life support. (laughs) The A is for the aim. What is the aim? And I often kind of rush in and open my big fat mouth when I wish I hadn't. And one of my personal trainings is to try and shut up more often. (laughs) The tricky thing with the aim, does something need to be said? It might just be, I like doing things this way and someone else does them this way. Like some, it's like my kids not having put the milk back in the fridge. I, do I need to say every day, can you put the milk back in the fridge? Mm. Getting increasingly annoyed every day so that when somebody else for the first time doesn't put back the milk back in the fridge, they get my accumulated 20 years of parenthood of getting frustrated with the milk not being back in the fridge. Yep. So it's me to understand, does something need to be said here? And it may well that it doesn't. But then if it does need to be said, Am I trying to say, is information going from me to you or from you to me? Yeah. And it seems like a simple thing, but it's really hard to sort out. Uh, And this is where Jenny Rudolph's model has been really good. So she calls them three different things. She calls it judgmental feedback, which sounds like a bit harsh, but I've made a judgment about stuff. And that's often what I'm doing, coaching the whole time. Hold it like this. I find do this. I'm not really interested in it. It's like saying, oh, there's a snake. Let's move back. <laughs> it's yeah. not, how does everyone feel about moving back from the snake? Yeah. Sometimes one way is good, just so long as in their jargon, I'm not going for my sword, which is not giving them the accumulated grief of me being frustrated with people. Yeah. And that's one way, and that's good. The other way is their, the third way, we'll come back to the second, is their model for being curious about understanding what's going on for the person. But the tricky thing about that is you have to be able to get curious. And I'm just paraphrasing exactly what gets taught at Boston Sim School. So often you can't get curious. Sometimes you're just a bit cross or you have to be able to hold what they call the basic assumption, which means the person's well-trained and they're trying their hardest. So it could be if someone's on day one, I can't hold the basic assumption because they're brand new. And if for whatever reason, I think that, oh, this person's late again. I am not, I can try a question that's got a question mark, but it won't sound curious. So it's like, oh, why did you do that that way? And why did you do that that way? Yeah. Like Seinfeld's helped us along. Yeah. <laughs> These pretzels are making me thirsty is exactly what happened. So if you can get curious, there's a strategy for just being curious. Oh, I noticed this happened. My concern is that that might have happened. What was it like from you? And if yeah. it sounds curious, it's terrific. The tricky thing is in the middle, exactly as you touched on, people don't want to be nasty. So you end up dancing around stuff and using the question of Socratic questioning where I ask a series of questions to lead you to a goal. So, oh, I noticed your iPad sitting there. Have you noticed there? Have you noticed that the table's just this week? And I'm trying to lead you to the conclusion that, oh, yeah, you're right. It could fall off the table. Yeah. And, but though, although there were questions, the information was going from me to you and I was just leading you. Uh, and often we get into that mode of, how did you think that went? which is the problem I have a little bit sometimes with the Pembleton measure, if there's the emotions are heightened, that's a difficult conversation. So it works really well if we all know that we're going to have a learning thing and that we're going to be throwing questions around the best teaching mode ever. So to summarize all of that, where possible, before I open a big fat mouth, I stop at A and work out 
What's the aim? And that question, how do you think that went or how did you feel about that? I remember that as a student and everything would just that a deep breath you have to take before you start with that. And I think if our supervisors or our educators can be skilled enough to get a bit more creative, you can introduce those concepts a lot more easily and it doesn't feel like such a burden to answer that question. Yeah, look, yeah. I, I do want to touch on Pendleton's model uh, a little bit later in the podcast because uh, we will be talking about that as far as uh, structure is concerned. When you're talking, Pete, about the the ACLS protocol that you're that you're using, and you're saying that S is the speak, so you, oh yes, I only got to A. <laughs> you still you you stopped at A. I stopped at A. So the aim is the first bit, which for me is the most important. Then the connect is working out: is this the right time, the right place, the the right people listening? And often, uh, if it's just coaching in theatre, maybe it's fine with heaps of people around, or maybe it's not fine with heaps of people around. But if there's something that seems like someone's upset or something like that, if I make the effort to make an appropriate time, avoiding the please come into my office thing, I don't have an office by the way, but finding a way to, it's clear that I'm there to listen. We can turn our phones off, have a cup of tea. Often that connect part does most of the debrief that they realize that I'm actually interested in listening. Yeah. And then the listen, it probably doesn't apply to you, Alicia, but for Doctors in general, and anaesthetists in <laughs> specific, we intervene early all the time. Our whole job skill is to go, ah, oh, yeah, got it. Don't even need to complete the sentence. Yep. I know what you're on about. And it's <laughs> like I'm changing, you know, ventilator settings and things the whole time in theatre and acting straight away. We as a craft group are the worst listeners and we need to train ourselves to listeners. Most other humans probably don't need the L in there. And then, uh, isn't, that, isn't that the reason you guys became an ethicist in the first place? That is the reason. But don't tell <laughs> so anyone. you don't actually have to listen to Correct. Correct. <laughs> Good morning. Have you got false teeth? Have you got private health insurance? <laughs> that ends our conversation. Uh, and then the speak is last and sometimes it's just the right thing to do. And sometimes it's not the right thing to do. Okay. And so is the speak part from the perspective of the person providing the feedback or the person giving the feedback? Right. So putting it into the two things. First of all, the aim, if I'm coaching in theatre, then I'm usually going straight to speak. I'm like, aim, yeah, my goal is to just keep giving real-time stuff, uh, connect. I might have decided how it's going to go. We might have a little model saying, hey, I'm going to give you, I'm sure we'll come to the plus delta, which is quite like the other models we'll talk about. Uh, for, at the end of the list, I'm going to say something I really like about what you're doing and something I'm going to think about doing in a different way. I'm going to try and frame that as a positive, just different ways of doing something. Listen to the person, but speaking is a big part of that. But if someone's upset, it's a completely different situation. And my aim is to hear the person. My aim is not to fix anything. Most of the time, I'm not qualified to fix any of the thing the person's upset about. And my goal is once I've got that aim clear, the connecting is huge. The listening is huge. And most of the time, the speaking, most people have got a problem, don't want their problem fixed. They want someone just to actually stop and listen to them. Yeah, yeah. So Alicia, it, it sounds like structuring feedback then is obviously very important. How Obviously you would agree with that. Absolutely. I think as Pete said earlier, like aligning the expectations before giving the feedback and being clear on the purpose of feedback, I guess, is really important. Like if we both the person receiving and the person giving feedback enter it, knowing kind of how it's going to run and what's expected of me in this, then I think you're going to have more productive outcomes. We need to ensure that all your learners understand the formative nature of the encounter. We want them, as a learner, we need to think critically, we need to reflect, and therefore that helps us improve if we're the ones doing the work. 
Whereas if we're being told, it's easier just to absorb that, maybe take some of it on board, but maybe not all of it. Um, so I think at the very start of whatever the feedback purpose is, clear on feedback is for your improvement. You need to actively participate in this. In fact, we're going to be really, you, you need to come, come to the party prepared. Yeah. So what do you mean by active participant? Do you mean that they should be seeking out the feedback? Absolutely. So if in your work setting or on your placement, you don't feel like you're getting enough feedback and thinking about how busy people are in the hospital, I think it's definitely worth seeking out and asking when that can happen or if that's already happening and you're oblivious because it's not being signposted a little bit. So yeah, I think it's really important to seek out the feedback. In allied health specifically, we want our students to be really strong participants in the conversations. When our students start a placement, we really sit them down and say, this is how we're going to structure feedback. This is your role in it. And the aim of that is for them to become comfortable in the process. But then there's no surprise when feedback is happening. They know how it's going to flow. And it's just the actual content of the conversation that they have to address rather than the, oh, that's now Steve's going to talk about what is well. Oh, I didn't know that, that would be coming. That yeah, yeah. Is gone. And I was going to say, I often let the, the learner know which model that I'm actually using. So there's no, no surprises there. So let's, let's talk about some of these models. Pete, do you just want to start? Because you, you touched a little bit before on the plus delta model. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah. So the plus is obviously a positive. So one would list the positives. And a delta is often a sign used for changing something. I think in physics, delta P is the change in whatever P is. Yeah. And that's a pretty common model. Like if people have been on the voice, you know, even if the chairs don't turn around at the end, they'll usually say something that there was like and something that, oh yeah, maybe you could change this on another time. So that's pretty similar to that. And again, I'd often be thinking, if I'm thinking of something that's a negative and I'm, going, I'm giving some negative feedback, I really have to have a quick look in the mirror because it may well be that I'm cross about something. I need to think <laughs> maybe now's not the time if I'm still cross. Yeah, yeah. So irrespective of which model we use, there's certain principles that you need to consider, Alicia. Yeah, and I think if you've got the principles down pat, the model is just there to be familiar and to have a flow. So we know that it probably works well if you let the learner speak first. So someone has a chance to be reflective of themselves and self-assess. And as a supervisor or an educator, that gives me a lot of insight into how much insight the learner has of themselves. If I can listen to them properly... I'm going to know whether they're on the right track or whether they're taking a tangent that I just wouldn't have known otherwise had I been doing the telling. Yeah. So initially you're giving them the structure of how you'd like them to do it and then you, the floor's theirs. Absolutely. So, you know, maybe at the start of the whole uh, situation you would talk to them about how you give feedback and expect that from me and then I would always start with them speaking first because I want to know they're on track a little bit um, and if they're not, well, I can pull them up quite quickly. Another good thing about them speaking first is that it's really hard for us to have facts about anyone. We've just got opinions. Yeah. So if we think that thing, something wasn't done well, it's just you know, it's pretty hard to be really objective. But it'll definitely have the truth of the situation from the person telling you about what their experience of something was. I think so. And I do believe over the course of time it saves you time um, because you get better insights straight away into that learner. We also have the, occasionally we have the performance appraisals where we get to sit down with our director and there's a, the same, there's a script about what we're going to go through. And most of us really look forward to listening to, being listened to and said, oh, this is this and that's us doing all the talking. But I think as the person doing that performance review or that feedback, if your manager starts it every year with, how's the last year been? It's like, oh, it's very broad. It's a bit like, how do you think that went? Whereas if, as the educators, we can be a bit more creative or a bit more 
enthusiastic in what we're asking of people straight away, then it doesn't feel like such a burden to be the one doing the talking. Well, so so this kind of comes brings me to the point of the Pendleton model because mm-hmm. I think this is the one that I wanted to discuss. It's certainly the one that I use most often uh, and this is the one that I often say to the students, I'm going to be using this particular model with you and this is how this model actually runs. And it does start, I guess, with asking them about what they think they're doing well. So it's it, rather than it being so broad and just saying, how do you think that went? It's actually really focusing a lot on what, what do you think you're doing well? And you actually ask them, what are they doing well? They, they give you a couple of things and then you can either agree or disagree with that depending on what it is. But you also add a couple of other things in there that they may not necessarily have considered because a lot of this, the feedback has to be a little bit of self-reflection, but it also has to be the feedback that's actually coming from you at the same time. Then the model then goes into what they what they think that they need to improve on. So then now they're focusing on that. And the first part about what they think they're doing well, they find really difficult. I have found they find it really difficult because even when they're starting to talk about things that they did well, they always put, then put in a but, but, and then they start talking about something. And I and I stop them then and I just say, hey, we're not talking about that right now. I want you to focus on the things that you are actually doing well. We will get to this other stuff soon. So then when you get to the other stuff and you say, what are the things that you want to improve on? All of a sudden the floodgates open and they all just start saying, oh, I did this bad, did this bad, did this bad or whatever and that. But the, the important thing about Pendleton's model is that when you, when you do hear one thing to say, this is one thing that they think that they're doing bad, you stop and you address it at the time and you say, right, well, let's address that and say, you think you're doing this bad. How can we actually improve it? Come up with a little bit of a strategy. I guess focus them on trying to come up with their own strategy as well as how they might think they want to in, improve it. And then of course at the end of that your your feedback session you then summarize everything and then you've got a bit of an action plan then that kind of goes goes forward from there. And that often works well too if you are sort of normalizing it by saying I want three things you're doing well and three things you're working on improving. Mm. Yep. Uh, as opposed to the blank page like Alicia was saying. Yeah, if someone needs guidance as well, you absolutely yeah, yeah, I think that that would actually be be quite effective because there have been times where I have been in a, in a situation where I have asked a, a learner whether they're actually doing like what they're doing well, and a lot of the time they just sit there and they're just like, I don't actually know, like I can't. They've never done self reflection before, or they really don't think that there's anything good that they're doing. Yeah, or they were so caught up in the moment of the consult or whatever it was that they they can't notice that, and so that that reinforcement from you that actually you came across really professionally or you delivered this information really well or you made the right decision in that, that stage, I think that's really important because it does reinforce the positives as well mm-hmm. and we learn from that as well. I think I'm not a big one for models or theories just for the sake of it, um, and, but I think the reason Pendleton is used so commonly is because it is easy enough to remember and it encourages the learner to participate as well. That's why I like it. Any model is fine as long as you can get those basic um, main principles down, you know, learner being involved, action plans at the end. But absolutely, I'd say Pendleton's the most common one we use in allied health just because it's memorable and you can make it flow. But you've got to be skilled in that facilitation. You've got to make it a bit more, you've got to be a bit more creative. Otherwise, yeah, any model gets boring. Yeah, absolutely. And look, this is part of the, the, the feedback loop. I think if you have a plan to move forward, then this can be a discussion point for further feedback. What role do we think that the learner should play in these feedback sessions? Well, Pete touched on it earlier about how important it is to listen. And I think we all just want to jump in, um, not just in medicine, but we all just kind of want to jump in and, and be that 
um, proactive sometimes. But I think if we can be listening, then we're going to get a better sense from the learner. So we want our learners to do most of the talking in the feedback conversations. And if they're on track and they have insight and know where they're heading, then tick, you might not have to say much at all because it gives us a clearer picture into the students' abilities and their level of realism or any learner into where they're going. So Alicia and Steve, when you're both giving feedback, are you relying on your observations or are you in a position within your departments where you have got other people giving you information that you're then having to feedback, which is obviously trickier? It's a really good question mm-hmm. because uh, certainly in, in the imaging department, I'm not working with the same learners all the time. In fact, in some cases, I may not work with a learner for an entire week. And then at the end of the week, they're coming to me asking for the feedback. So what I've actually done is I've actually set up a a system whereby the supervisor can scan a QR code and the QR code then takes them to a a very quick 30 second feedback page that they basically just fill out. So they may may have worked with a, a learner for half a day and then they fill out the, the form via the QR code for 30 seconds or whatever, I get all that information. So that when it comes to the students coming to me saying, I want my summative feedback now, I can sit them down and just go, right, well, I've got X number of people have actually have mentioned this. And I kind of structure it a little bit. Like we talk about things like, you know, do they take initiative and how well do they communicate? Um, any other like, you know, free writing comments that they might want to make about them. And then that then allows me to be able to structure a little bit more about the feedback. But again, it comes back to that self-reflection and that the learner needs to be the one that actually does that, that self-reflecting. I, of course, in those situations, I can only go by what information I've been given. So that, yes, they may be self-reflecting on something that may not necessarily be accurate. Um, but if I at least have that information with me, then I can then pass that on to the student. One thing that quite a lot of the um, educational bodies within medicine are doing, uh, especially when there's a program where people have sort of years of seniority of the people doing the training, uh, there's this repeated subjective assessment saying, are they sort of the level you expect them to be? Is this person behaving like a second year without Mm. giving guidelines of what that is? And from the person's, the observer's dialogue saying, yeah, that's about right. Seems to be some value in that too, that whereas most of the specific examples are people projecting their own dissatisfaction onto the learner repeatedly saying, yeah, you're about right for a second year or you're more like a third year than a second year. Mm. Seems to be a lot of value. Most people have got an internal model of sort of what someone should be like at a certain level. And I guess as you get more experience, that internal model potentially does get more accurate or um, however the risk is that if you said that to me, Pete, I'm going to walk away and say, well, what do I need to do to become? Oh, true. I'm thinking more when you're collecting the information from someone, uh, from like you've got Yes. 15 colleagues Sorry. feeding in information. Yep. If someone's kind of where they should be, then it's fine for the person to be doing all the talking and it's a nice chat. If they're an outlier somewhere, that might be where the, the, the potential failure of the model where they're doing all the talking, if, if they don't, for example, have insight and they're repeatedly doing something and everyone's saying, oh, this person is not behaving like a third year, then uh, you might have to get a little craftier. The reason I introduced it in the first place was more because I would only ever be receiving feedback from my colleagues if there was a problem with the student. If there was no problem with the student or the learner, then I would not normally receive anything. And so when the, when the student would come to me and just say, hey, I need, I need feedback on this, I'm just like, well, I don't have anything bad to say about you because no one said anything bad, but I'm assuming everything's good. 
So I needed to structure that a little bit more and that's why we kind of went down that path. And it's probably something that I could refine in the future as well. I like the fact that it's being real time. um, For us, just the nature of things, like with our registrar group, we've got uh, more than 30 anaesthetic consultants and then with the fellows, the people giving feedback is quite large and there's nine new trainees every four months. Just the nature of things. It's usually the last couple of weeks I'm sending out a thing saying, give me some feedback on people. And that tends to drift to the vanilla, like, oh, yeah, that's uh, nice. That's good. Yeah. Whereas real time, uh, anything you can put in so that the feedback is happening uh, close to the time where whatever events happen, I think it's much more valuable. Yeah, well, and that's one of the other the other models is the uh, the feedback sandwich. That's usually the default one that most people <laughs> that most people do, which is the, uh, you did this well, you did this poorly, but you did this well. Yeah, there's a lot of difficulty <laughs> with that one. I like one of the surgical colleges, I'm often talking to the surgeon and that's the official way for their, uh, their college to give feedback. And it's one way. So yeah. it's a single loop learning. So you did this and that you have the first bit of bread, then there's the unpleasant filling and you often never get to the second piece of bread. Yeah. So you need to be so well informed if you're using that sandwich model. And um, I've not had a lot of uh, feelings that I really want to take it on. Right. So it's an open feedback sandwich. (laughs) Deconstructed. Deconstructed feedback. Yeah, exactly. Um, Now let's look at some of the inhibiting factors for feedback where the feedback is either not done or it's ineffective. Um, Alicia, what do you think contributes to this? Oh, I think there's some really obvious ones from an, I guess, the educator point of view. So how do we balance the work we have to do, our admin, plus the load of having to give feedback, whether it's to a student or to to a staff member or a colleague? So Limited time, definitely. And I think we've already touched on lack of skill in facilitating feedback. So hopefully this podcast helps there, Steve. <laughs> yep. And there's, I guess, that adherence to historical models where it's telling rather than that, I guess, full loop system. Um, and as Pete touched on before, it's the tendency we want to diagnose and we want to fix things. And I could just tell you what you did wrong and then you would do it better next time. But rather than it's that collaborative decision making, we're really wanting people to engage in, which I know can sound a little bit vague, but I think it's really important that we listen as much as we talk. Um, And then from a learner point of view, I guess sometimes you're a bit reluctant to evaluate your own learning in front of someone who's more senior to you. You know, sometimes until you have that comfortable relationship, you don't really want to tell them what you think you did well, because you don't want to sound like you are really impressed with yourself. Mm -hmm. And also maybe Steve, I don't want to tell you everything that I think I need to improve on because maybe you didn't notice it. Yeah, there might be something you missed. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I, I guess there's also that concern that I wouldn't want to challenge the senior supervisor's views as well um, if I disagree. So I think there's a few, from both points of view, there's a few things that we that can easily fall into. Um, but I think time's a big one, to be honest. Uh, Alicia, as you're saying that, I'm imagining it sort of at the end of a term where you're providing some reflection. Uh, for the real-time thing, I suspect uh, for the uh, people I sort of see and interact with, the main thing that stops the teacher uh, from saying anything is that they don't want to be picky, say something bad. So if that's the case, the structure really helps. So saying out in advance, hey, at the end of the day, we're going to do a, we have a model, but plus Delta comes up pretty quickly. Yeah. And for the learners in the, in the fourth month of anesthesia training, there's a, we almost wave a flag where they ask for coaching. As opposed to most people think feedback is a formal thing with a thing that you fill out a thing and it gets sent to the people who collect the things. I was asking for coaching real time. Uh, it enable, if someone asked me, I mean, as you can tell, I don't need 
too much encouragement no. to speak, <laughs> but other humans who need more encouragement, if they're asked, they may have thought, well, I didn't want to be picky because I've got no evidence for this. But since you've asked, I do this, this, and you notice I did this, and I drew this up over there because if this happened, that might. And so there's often, first month is too early. There's too much going on. Whereas the fourth month where people are pretty at home and working at a pretty high level, that's where they're really ready for coaching non-scientific but tricks of the trade. So that's a really good time. And if they ask for coaching, much better than asking for feedback. Yeah, yeah. Like at the start, everything is so new mm. about our particular role in this hospital that you underestimate how new everything is and the cognitive load of a whole lot of new yeah. stuff. Like if you're trying to teach me something, Alicia, and I'm in that second week, it's like I'm barely <laughs> counting on my fingers those things I need to do already yeah. and I'm just not ready for it. Yep. Whereas once I'm settled in and I feel less awkward. There's some room to absorb then. <laughs> yes. I think there's also that that... You kind of touched a little bit on this before, but that reluctance to when you're actually working alongside someone to actually give that negative feedback as well, because it does disrupt that working relationship that you might necessarily, that you might have with that person. So if someone actually did something incorrect and you had had to pull them up on it or whatever, if you don't have that relationship already where they feel like they can receive that type of negative feedback and that you feel like you can actually give it, then you might it might actually affect how you actually work with that person. Well, I think that's a good session. point. This is where Jenny Rudolph's stuff is really a bit of a masterpiece. Giving direct feedback, uh, so long as you don't add the, your life's frustration to it, it's just fine. No, do this like this. Put the thing like that. Not for goodness sake, haven't I, how many times have I told people to? <laughs> that damages a relationship. Yeah. Having a structure to... Uh, help you give feedback. So if you've announced it, I tend not to talk about doing something wrong as opposed to doing something differently. So I'm just realizing from this conversation how, <laughs> how well and truly I'm in that habit is I'm thinking if they're doing something wrong, I'm thinking, well, there's not too many things that are wrong. Every now and then there is, but yeah, most, and then you just have direct feedback. Don't do that. Do that like that. Um, but the other way is about doing things differently. Yeah. I think the, the frustrating, if, if we kind of talk about students in particular, the frustrating thing I think for a student is that when they're working with a specific person, that person might have their way, their way of doing things. And then all of a sudden you work with another person and they've got their way of doing things. And you have to do it as a student, you have to do it their way, not the way that, you know, you need to, as someone who's, who is on the other side of it, the, the non-student person you need to be open to the fact that a student may actually have a different way of doing things as opposed to you have to do it my way every single time because it can be very confusing, I think, as a student to think I've got to do this this way when uh, I do that's this a, person. That's a super good point. And for the world of anesthesia, like we work largely in isolation and we do whatever worked well yesterday, we tend to do it again. And mm. so we tend to have really entrenched habits. I think some of the good ways for learning, if you're the teacher – Starting each thing, each sentence with I, I do it like this, as opposed to do it like this. That's a nice habit to get into. And the tricky thing for the learner is to have a talk about issues, because it may well be that you and your colleague share their concerns and we've got the same issue. It just happens that you've got different practices for addressing the issue. Often the issue and talking about the issue is the safe ground, even though you're going to do that and they're doing never that. And don't often forget that the, the teacher can sometimes be the learner. Oh, yeah. The, from the learner being, and then the learner, you know, the, your role may actually switch in the middle of a, of a teaching session, I guess. 
And we definitely see that in our, like our clinical supervision. So when staff supervise staff, absolutely. So you learn from each other. And that's a great relationship when that happens. Yeah. Alicia, can we just, uh, have you got any take-home messages? Uh, I think so. I think feedback is a skill that needs to be developed. Even if you've been doing it for 30 years, giving feedback, you still need to think about, you know, we all need to reflect, not just the learners. So we need to develop our skills. We need to call it out. So this is feedback. Sign back, signpost what you're doing if you think that your learner doesn't realise that this conversation you're having is part of some formative feedback. So we've said that structure is important, whether it's a model, whether it's just a routine, as long as your learner knows that, that's what's really important. Um, and I know I've harped on it a lot, but we want that self-reflection and the self-assessment from the learner because it just gives us great insight. Yeah. And what about you, Pete? Any take-home messages from you? Uh, I'd say it's the A of the ACLS. What's the aim? Is the information going from me to you or from you to me? Yeah, perfect. Thanks again, guys. Uh, there's plenty of resources and literature out there about feedback. We're actually probably going to be running another podcast extending a little bit more of this discussion about feedback in the future. Take the time to have a look through any of the literature uh, about feedback and participate in some of the courses and feedback provided by your organisation. For those who work at RCH, there's heaps of feedback courses available and uh, they're all very, very worthwhile. Thanks again, guys, for the discussion. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for listening to Teach, Think, Treat, part of the Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast series. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, check out our other podcast show, Conversation with the Experts, where professionals from the Melbourne Children's Campus provide advice and insights, tips and tricks, and discuss latest research findings on a range of topics. 